Our Father, we're blessed to know that you're present here with us this morning. I thank you for each individual here today and for what you're doing in each life. And Father, collectively, there's a great deal of experience in walking with Christ present here this morning. And each of us can testify to your faithfulness and your goodness. And many have been through difficult times and will yet go through difficult times. And in it all, we see you to be faithful. And this so relates to the account that we're looking at in Genesis. Father, for the man Joseph and his faithfulness. And yet we see in him human frailties. And because of that, we're able to better relate to him because we know our own frailties and failures. So Lord, again, we ask for your spirit to guide our understanding and give us insight into this passage in Christ's name. Amen. 39th chapter of Genesis. I'd like to read the passage that we started on last uh, Sunday, beginning at verse 7, reading through verse 18. Genesis 39, beginning at verse 7, reading through 18. Now it came about after these events that his master's wife looked and with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns in my charge. There was no one greater, there is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. But now, no, wait a minute, how, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was inside. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make sport of me, and it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Joseph is obviously a man who is being pursued diligently here, a man who is being badgered heavily by the enemy. And last week we focused on that theme and we looked at some of the passages in the New Testament which talk about putting on the armor of God, passages we're very, very familiar with, being alert, resisting the evil one. Because although we may resist Satan at a given moment, and he may flee because the Scripture promises that will happen, that does not mean he will not return. And he does. And as it was true in the case of Joseph, this woman kept after him day after day after day. But Joseph was adamantly steadfast, and he avoided being alone with her, which is one of the keys, of course, to uh, having success in resisting this temptation. I think at the same time, though, he had to kind of balance things out. 
it was very, very important that in avoiding her, being with her, he had to avoid offending her. He had to make sure she understood it was not because she was not attractive, it was not because she was not beautiful or desirable, but with him it was a moral issue. It was an issue of sin against his God and against her husband. Obviously, that was not a problem to her. She didn't see it that way. She didn't worship the God that jo Joseph worshipped. And again, uh, referring to the uh, religious scene in Egypt at that time, uh, Egypt was a polytheistic land. There were hundreds, literally hundreds, of gods and goddesses worshipped throughout the land. The mythology is, is very uh, uh, convoluted and complex, uh, very much similar in many ways uh, to Greek mythology. In fact, there undoubtedly is some interaction between the Egyptian and Greek mythologies. Her concern then was not about moral issues. She had no morality as Joseph had. But the situation finally one day came to a head. And that's what we have read about in this particular account. Joseph innocently went in to do his job. In this case, it probably was record keeping. He probably had a particular place in the house where he was supposed to keep records. So he was upstairs in, in the part of the house where the family lived. This was his job to do that, as well as to go out and oversee everything out in the field and in, along in the estate. Everything, as he said here, everything was in his charge. And so Joseph was in the house to do his record keeping. And I think Potiphar's wife was the farthest thought from his mind, except for possibly the thought, he better watch out for her. But she had laid a trap. She knew he would be coming in to do this, and so she arranged for all the servants to be at another part of the house, at least not upstairs or close enough to witness what she was about to do. And so as Joseph came in to do his job, she came to him. She was probably dressed as alluringly as she could dress herself. And the scripture says she grabbed him. And she demanded that he yield to her. We have to again view this as a spiritual combat. Satan is pulling out all the stops here. Subtlety is gone. It's in your face. Temptation. I think much to her surprise, I, I'm sure she felt, if I get him close to me, <laughs> and if I can get him in the right situation, he will compromise. He, he will yield. He, he will find me desirable. And I think to her surprise, he just turned and he fled, even though he had to slip out of his outer garment in order to do that, because she had grabbed a hold of him. And rather than wrestle with her and to, to any way imply that anything was wrong in his thinking, he just simply dropped his garment into her hands and he fled outside. Obviously with part of his clothing missing. Not that he was indecent, but uh, obviously leaving a piece behind, which was very, <laughs> would prove to be, of course, damning evidence. Joseph, in doing this, was fulfilling a New Testament passage, which of course would not be written for a couple of thousand years yet. But again, over and over again, we have to remember that the truth of Scripture is eternal. Forever the Word of God is settled in heaven. 
the psalmist tells us. And so the truth of Scripture has always existed, even though Joseph had never read it per se. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, of course, speaking to this Corinthian crowd, says, flee immorality. Flee it. Run from it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Without going into some kind of great theological debate about where the Holy Spirit is and was in the Old Testament as opposed to the New, the truth is the same. Joseph was a man who represented the God of the universe. He was God's man on the spot. God was with him. And he fled this immoral situation. And so he was living out this truth, which it seems today so many who have this book in front of them forget, even within the church. And it creates very, very great calamities too frequently. Joseph succeeded in escaping from Potiphar's wife. But if you look at this from the worldly perspective, it looks as if Joseph is actually jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Think about this woman for a moment. Is she in love with Joseph? Hardly. She has a passion for him because as the scripture says, she had desire in her eyes for him. So her passion is not rooted in love and quickly it turns to a violent hatred. She exhibits the outrage of a woman scorned. Now think about it for a moment. She is one of the highest ranking women in Egypt. She is a blue blood, if you will. She stands certainly up amongst the highest ladies. She would be in the, co the court of the queen, as it were. And she has literally thrown herself at a foreign slave. Somebody who, who was literally to the to Egyptians nothing more than trash. Kind of humiliating when you think about it. So she has literally thrown herself at Joseph and she has realized now that she is not going to succeed in seducing him. Therefore, she turns to the opposite extreme and says, I will destroy him. He scorns me, I will destroy him. After all, look at who I am. Look at who he is. He dares to scorn me. So she screams. Now, had she planned this all ahead of time? I don't think so. I think she planned that, that seducing Joseph would be successful this time. And so into her mind suddenly comes a new plan. She screams for the household servants to come. She dishevels herself so that she looks as if she had to struggle to break free from an attacker. And of course, when the servants finally come in, she appears to be fearful and angry all at the same time. She wants to make this demonstration look good. Now remember, these servants were, were not there. And so they're running up, and now they're listening to her story. 
Now, Joseph has been a part of the household for quite a while now. And they have seen Joseph come in at the very bottom rung. They have seen him advance up the ladder to be the head of all the servants. Second in the whole of the household under Potiphar himself. And I think they had come to respect Joseph. I think they have seen him as a man of honesty, of integrity, a, a man who did everything well, who lived according to the precepts of his God. They had probably witnessed this woman attempt at other times to act in a seductive manner around Joseph. And so now they're being asked to believe that Joseph has attacked her. Now you have to think about that for a moment. That's stretching it for them. I think they thought in their minds, they didn't say it out loud certainly, right, uh-huh, don't believe a word of it. But they have no option. They are the servants. They must obey what she says. They must do what she says. And of course she has screamed and they have seen nothing. So all they can say is, yes, we heard her scream. Yes, we came running. Yes, she appeared disheveled. And this is what she said. They could all honestly answer that to be true. But in their hearts, I don't think they believed a word of it. But she demanded this witness from them. Now think about it also. She's going to need every help she can get to convince her husband that this is what happened. Because I think, although Potiphar may have been a little bit stoogy, he probably wasn't too, totally stupid. And he probably knew something of his wife's character after however many years he had lived together uh, with her. And he also knew a great deal about Joseph's character. And he had seen his estate blessed. He had seen everything multiply, everything go well. Everything Joseph did was right. And now he's going to be coming home and his wife is going to ask him to believe that this Hebrew has attacked her. She's going to need all the help she can get to convince her husband that it is true. Well, Potiphar does return home. And you'll notice it says there that she kept his garment beside her. Well, what had happened undoubtedly was she had gone to uh, the area where he was going to record keep. This event had taken place. When she grabbed his garment and she decided to hatch up this second plan, she ran into her bedroom and disheveled herself in the bed and put his garment there on the bed as if that's where he had been. When, of course, he had not been anywhere near her bedchamber. And so she stayed there until Potiphar came home so she could show him the whole thing and testify as to what she th said, uh, you know, was trying to convince him, him had happened. Why does Potiphar believe her? Does Potiphar believe her? Well, the action that we read about in here seems to indicate that he was forced at least to accept her word as true. Now, if you, look, if you consider the, the situation, here she is, a woman of very high Egyptian rank. She may have even been of the royal family. It's possible. And who is Joseph? Joseph is not an Egyptian. In fact, he's a hated Asiatic. He's a Hebrew. He's a foreigner. He's a slave. And so here is Potiphar. He comes 
this woman gives him, she's his wife, she gives him this story. He certainly in his mind had a really difficult time believing this. And personally, I don't think he ever believed it. But he has no option but to condemn Joseph. Because who in Egypt would take the word of a foreign slave over that of a high-ranking Egyptian noblewoman? Think about it. Put yourself in the American South, not all those many years ago. How many people would believe the word uh, of a black person against the word of a white person in some kind of a conflict in the South? What court? Almost none. Especially during the days of slavery. There was no way. And you put that in this picture here, and you have the same thing. He, uh, Joseph is just in the same exact position as a black person was in the South in, in the antebellum period. And so, what option does Potiphar have to put Joseph in prison? Well, let's read on and see what happens. Verse 19. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. You know, always look at that and you say, Lord, you know, if you had not caused this to happen in the first place, you wouldn't have to do all this. <laughs> you, know. you can just believe that this woman, she, she probably put on a show that would have if anybody, you know, if a talent agent had watched her, they thought, oh, this woman's ready for Shakespeare, you know. As she uh, embellished her innocence and tried to describe Joseph as a vicious, two-faced demon. And what she is doing in this passage, in, at the end of the first passage we read in this one, she's implying that her husband is at fault. Because you brought your servant into this house. And you gave him this place of, uh, of, of power. It's your fault, is what she's implying here. You brought this on me because you trusted this man. This probably didn't make Potiphar feel a whole lot better about the whole situation. Now, the scripture tells us that Potiphar became very angry. But the scripture does, and, and we just Im, we imply from this that he's anger, angry at Joseph because Joseph is then put in a jail. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say at whom he is angry. Was he angry with Joseph? Well, it's, it's possible he was angry with Joseph. But if he was really, really angry with Joseph, why did he just throw Joseph into the royal prison? He had the power to out of hand execute Joseph on the spot and no questions would have been asked. He was his slave. He could do with him what he wanted. He had the power of life and death over Joseph. 
So why does he put him into prison rather than execute him if his burning anger was focused on Joseph? I think his anger was really burning against his wife because she was denying to him the blessing of the best administrator this man had ever seen. Everything Joseph did prospered. I mean, Potiphar's wealth was growing by leaps and bounds. He had no concern for anything that was under Joseph's care. And he knew the power of Joseph's God. And now not only was he being denied Joseph, but certainly with him would go Joseph's God. And now he would have calamity or certainly he'd have trouble. He'd have to go back and supervise everything himself again. What a pain. This woman was causing him a big pain, I think he may have thought. I think he also was angry for the fact that she was making him look the fool for having tr been so gullible as to trust this person who would then go in when he was away and sneak in and attack his own wife. I don't think he believed it. But he was made to look foolish. And I don't think he liked it. I think he was a man of great pride. And this hurt his pride greatly. Well, Whatever the case, I think the proof's in the action. He does not execute Joseph. He not only does not execute Joseph, he doesn't throw Joseph into the common city bailiwick. He puts him in the royal prison where people were undoubtedly kept at a little better condition, where the work probably wasn't quite as hard and where life was not quite as wretched as it would have been in the common prison. Hundreds of years later, God would promise to Moses, go ahead, Moses, I will be with you. Shortly after, he had promised to, Joseph, uh, to, to uh, Joshua, go into the land. I will be with you. I will be with you throughout your life. I will be your strength. I will be your help. 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ would promise his disciples that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Look, if you will, at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. That's a reiteration of verse 2, where it says, And the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph as he was sold as a slave into a foreign land, into an alien environment. The Lord was with Joseph. And now as Joseph is thrown into a prison in that alien land, it says the Lord was with Joseph. As a Christian, is there anything that we can do that would make it so that God would not be with us? If you believe that, you haven't read the 8th chapter of Romans, which makes it very, very clear that neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor anything created, which includes ourselves. Some would argue, well, but, you know, maybe nobody else can say, separate you from the love of God, but you can separate yourself. Ah, uh, that's included. The whole thing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He is with us. That does not mean, as Paul would later say, that shall we sin that grace may abound, that we should say, oh, well, God's always with us, so let's go live like the devil. No, I don't think so. I think if that's our thinking, 
And God's not with us in the first place because we're not his child. If we are truly his child, then that kind of thinking will quickly be erased from our minds and we will seek to be obedient. And so we have here in the case of Joseph, the Lord is with him. Even in the dungeon of a pagan king in a land that is dominated by the prince of darkness, Joseph is not bereft of the presence and power of his God. Jonah was taken to the bottom of the Mediterranean in the belly of the fish. And there he prayed. God heard him. What was he doing? He was defying God and refusing to be obedient and were running away to do exactly the opposite of what God commanded him to do. Is there anything else that we could do worse? And yet God spoke to him. He prayed. God heard. God was with Joseph even in this prison. Joseph could easily have blamed God for this injustice that had happened to him. After all, he was innocent, right? He had not yielded. So he could have said, Where were you, God, when I needed you? I was there. I did what you commanded me to do or what I believed was what you wanted me to do. I fled from the temptation and look where I am. I'm in prison as if I had yielded to the temptation. Peter speaks to that in other places where, you know, if you're chastised for doing wrong, what, what is there to glory in that? But if you're chastised for doing right then God is glorified and we are, we are blessed. Joseph, I think, uh, was a man and therefore he probably had a few doubts, didn't he? I mean, anybody in this situation would say, whoa, I did what was right. How come I'm here? What happened, Lord? Were you not around for a while? Did I do something wrong? I mean, it would only be natural to think that way. We can't make Joseph into some kind of a, you know, a golden saint with a halo around his head who did everything right and thought every good thought. I mean, he was a man, just as we are. And so certainly the questions came into his mind. But like Job, he, his hope remained in the faithfulness of his God. I don't understand it. I don't know why this has happened to me, but I believe God. He will bring it to the right conclusion for his glory and for my blessing. Can we always look at that in every situation we face? Whether it be a serious physical attack of an illness of some sort, or, or a near death, I mean a death to a near loved one in our family, or a financial res a reverse that seems to wipe us out, can we believe that in that darkness, in that hard situation, that God is there and God understands and God will help us through? Well, Joseph did. I think Satan was on his case. Satan was in that prison. <laughs> Satan probably was already in the prison before with all the other dudes that were in there, but he was in that prison to be all over Joseph and to keep whispering in Joseph's ear, ha, you're God, what kind of a God is that? You do what he says and, and look what happens to you. you know, just like Job's wife said, well, why don't you just curse God and die? That would really solve the problem. And... Uh, Joseph recognized 
that that was not an answer. I think through Joseph's mind ran the thought, I was almost dead once before. I was in a worse place than this. I was in a cistern up there at Dothan with just a little bitty hole in the top and no way out. And my brothers were going to leave me there to die. And God rescued me. And God brought me down to Egypt. Now, that's one step better than a cistern. At least I'm alive. An alien land, but, but God was with me. And God got me into a family where, where the man elevated me. I mean, God was with me. Because he has been with me through this time, should I, because of another reverse, suddenly deny him? Joseph could have easily denied the Lord as he was down in the cistern. But he does not deny his God. He continues to trust in him. His faith is not shaken. And although, again, the words had not been recorded yet, but I think Joseph may have believed in the principle that you read in the fifth chapter of Matthew, in verses 10 to 12, part of what we call the Beatitude passage. Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If that doesn't apply to Joseph, I don't know what does. Accused falsely, persecuted for his God. Why did he resist this woman? Because of his faith in his God and his obedience to his God. And yet it's because of that he was in this prison, persecuted for doing right. I think as we look at America today, it's very possible that this will become more of a rampant thing here. And more and more true Christians will be persecuted because of their faith in God. In fact, um, that, do you have that Elliot newsletter, Lois, there? Elizabeth Elliot, in her uh, uh, newsletter, quotes here from William Bennett. And uh, says here, In America today, the only respectable form of bigotry is bigotry directed against religious people. This antipathy toward religion cannot be explained by the moral failures and financial excesses of a few leaders or charlatans or by the censoriousness of some of their followers. No, the reason for the hatred of religion is that it forces modern man to confront matters he would prefer to ignore. Then going on down, quotes from a writer from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, oh, no, back up earlier, um, religious re editor of a national news magazine explained why the media hates Christians. Because people want to sleep with their girlfriends, period. Christians, by their very presence, are a nuisance, as the conscience of every man, woman, and child made in the image of God is a nuisance if we're bent on doing what we feel like doing. And so I think as Christians, it's going to get worse rather than better. 
And so Joseph, I think, will become a story we'll have to look at a little bit more frequently as maybe relating to the situation that we may be experiencing. Does God say, okay, now, Joseph, you're down there, and I've got, I've got other things to do. Now, I've got other fish to fry, so you can just kind of sit in prison for a while. Well, no, we've already read that the Scripture said God was with Joseph. So how is God going to be with Joseph in prison? Well, it could keep Joseph from starving. He could make it so Joseph didn't have to break as big a rocks as other guys had to break. I mean, there are various things God could have done to be with Joseph. But what it says here is that God gave Joseph favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison, the warden. Now, I think the warden either was told or was suspicious of the fact that Joseph had been framed. So he's not dealing with a real criminal here to start with. And Joseph's attitude and his demeanor and his skill convinced the warden that here was a prisoner he could trust. Here was one who could help lighten his load. I, I think we have to visualize the fact that in the ancient prison, you didn't have a situation like the modern prison. You know, if the warden blows it in the modern prison, he just loses his job. In ancient prison, the warden blows it, he loses his life. Remember in the uh, prison at Ephesus? And the gates, the doors are thrown open, the prisoners are freed. I mean, no, it was Philippi, right? <laughs> I get my prison, prisons mixed up. The Philippian jailer. The guy was going to kill himself. Why? Because he was responsible if the prisoners escaped. He'd be executed, so he's going to take his own life. So here we have a warden who's very, very interested in finding somebody he can trust to carry some of the load for him. So as it says in this uh, passage here that the chief jailer, verse 23, did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. He didn't have to bother. If Joseph was in charge, the, the jailer the, didn't even have to think about it. He'd go off and do other things. So Joseph was put in charge of the daily duties of the prisoners. Prisoners were not just put in prison in those days to sit in their cell and watch TV or go to the gym and pump iron. <laughs> you saw that recent uh, news thing about the concern some have about the prisoners pumping iron just getting bigger and stronger so they can go out and be badder criminals. Well, they didn't pump iron in these days. They didn't just vegetate. They were made to work. They had to do things that were meaningful to the regime, whether they liked it or not. They were prisoners. They were, in effect, slaves, and they just did whatever. And, of course, we're familiar with those kinds of systems. The Gulag Archipelago, for example, over in the Soviet Union and the Nazi prison camps during World War II and, and many other prison camps that have been similar in history where prisoners were not allowed to vegetate but were made to do hard work even if it killed them because it didn't matter if it killed them. They were in prison anyway as a punishment. <clears throat> Joseph, thus, was supervisor of prison work and of the whole daily routine of the prison. And we don't know how many prisoners we're talking about here. Probably several hundred uh, involved altogether. And Joseph was in charge of them. The warden came to feel that Joseph was a man to whom he could give complete trust and responsibility and not have to worry about the outcome. 
Because everything Joseph did, what does the scripture say? The Lord made to prosper. You wonder, how do things prosper in prison? Doesn't seem like a very prosperous place. I think this warden was very quickly convinced that he had done the right thing here, putting Joseph in charge. I think the prosperity was seen in the fact that the prison population was suddenly more cooperative. There was a greater uh, level of uh, a higher morale. <laughs> uh, they weren't always grousing. They weren't always looking for a way to strangle the nearest guard or to break out of prison. They weren't rioting. There were no fights. More work was being accomplished. I think the warden could hardly believe it. There's never been such a peaceful place before, not even in the streets of Memphis. So the warden had it made. I think probably in that situation, he's going to say, I don't want Joseph to leave this prison, <laughs> which of course wasn't Joseph's thought at all. I think in it all, we have to remember Joseph was a living testimony to the faithfulness of his God. He was not afraid to speak of his God. And he made it clear to whomever he was talking, my God is responsible for this prosperity. My God is responsible for this. In the next passage, in the next chapter we're going to see, when it came to interpreting dreams, he makes it quite clear, God is the interpreter of dreams. I may be the agent, but God is the interpreter of dreams. Joseph was not quiet about his God, and therefore his God honored him. Here in this seemingly least desirable type situation in which to find himself. Chapter 40. I'll read the first few verses here, and we'll probably have to uh, develop them more uh, next week. <clears throat> These next two chapters, now 40 and 41, deal with Joseph rising from prison to prime minister. And uh, there aren't very many examples of this in history. But in this particular case, there is absolutely no question that God was fully responsible all the way along for this rise, and Joseph does not hide the truth of that fact. Chapter 40, verse 1. Then it came about, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt defended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in the confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Who's God? Do not interpretations belong to God? We have to read into that, I think, several things. 
because they're going to say, who's God? I never heard of God before. <laughs> and I think involved in that is an explanation by Joseph of who Yahweh was. That he was the God of the whole universe. He was above all the gods and goddesses of Egypt. They were nothing in his sight. He was the creator. He was the one who could distinguish the beginning from the end, who could move the planets through their orbits. Well, whatever all involved, was involved in Joseph's theology, I think he had a pretty good grasp of who God was, considering how little scripture uh, was available to him, none in written form, of course. And so as we look through this passage, one of the interesting things in, is the first phrase. Then it came about after these things. That's the Hebrew way of saying, quite a while later, which tells us Joseph wasn't in prison for a couple of weeks. Joseph was in prison for month after month after month after month into years. We say, where was God? Didn't God know that Joseph was rotting in prison? That his talents could better be used out there somewhere than in prison? Do we sometimes think that maybe our talents are being overlooked by God? That maybe we're over here in this corner and, and God doesn't notice that our talents would be better used over here? I mean, I, my talents would be better used if I were the preacher. Or if I were the soloist. Or if I were this or if I were that. You know, all have such grandiose dreams, but often we have this thought that maybe our talents are not being used to their fullest and God doesn't recognize that we'd be better off in this position than in that position. I'd be better off as a vice president of the corporation rather than just a lowly foreman down here or whatever. Joseph was in prison. And until Joseph exhibited to God, God, of course, knew, but God wanted it there for the pages of history. Ex Joseph exhibited his faithfulness in the little things that God could give him the great things and make him prime minister of the land and trust him with the salvation, the physical salvation of the covenant people, the children of Jacob. So much rested on this. And God was still in the process of proving Joseph. Interesting, Tim made a comment just before class that... Uh, and, and I think it's, it's possible to see that in here, that when Joseph says, there's none greater in this house than I, that maybe a still a little bit of that braggadocia from the time he was younger was still there. You know? <laughs> That's possible, right? And so being in prison might fry out the last of that. <laughs> and certainly he could now become prime minister of the land without a, an inch of pride in that position. Well, next week we'll, we'll look at how this develops here in prison.